the theologian, Oswald Bayer, once wrote, without trust, there is no life. Without trust, there is no life. It perhaps sounds like something of an overstatement, but when you ponder those words, I think he was exactly right. We are very, very dependent upon one another in order to make life work. Every single day, each of us leans upon, depends upon dozens, if not hundreds, of other people around us in order to simply live our lives. And every single time that we lean upon someone, depend upon someone, we are exercising, to some degree, to some extent, a level of trust. And when that trust erodes, when it disappears, life stops. Without trust, there is no life. So the question becomes, how then do we build trust? How might we sustain trust? How can we learn to trust one another? How can we present ourselves as trustworthy? There are many answers to that question. There are many things that need to be considered as we think through the issue of trust, but most foundationally, the most fundamental answer to the question of how we build trust is that we must learn to trust the Lord. Ultimately, we must learn better how to trust God because our horizontal relationships are always, only, ever a reflection of our vertical relationship. The way in which we behave towards one another is in some way a reflection of the way in which we behave towards God. The way in which we love our neighbor is a reflection of the manner in which we love God. When we fail to love one another, it is representative of a failure on the horizontal of the vertical axis, failing to love God. Whatever is true amongst us is first of all true with respect to our relationship with God. And it becomes especially important as you think about trust within the church. Trust within society is one thing, but when you move into the church, we more than anyone should be those who are found trusting one another, depending upon one another, presenting ourselves as trustworthy to one another. If we fail, then the ramifications are disastrous. All of a sudden, you now have a congregation that is no longer trusting one another, failing to represent Christ to a watching world. And so the imperative becomes that we would all strive to learn how to better trust the Lord. Now, the book of Isaiah is a sustained theology of trust. Perhaps more than anywhere else in the Bible, trust is the theme that permeates all 66 chapters of this wonderful book. The prophet Isaiah spoke over a very long period. When you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, you realize this man had a very long ministry, and a lot of things were happening during his ministry. Perhaps the most significant event ha that happened during Isaiah's time was that the northern kingdom was taken away into exile. The northern kingdom, the Israelites, were taken away by the hand of the Assyrians, and so the southern kingdom, to whom Isaiah is predominantly writing, the southern kingdom get a wake-up call. They see their brothers disappear at the hand of the Assyrians. Practically, their, their buffer zone just disappeared. The northern kingdom had always functioned for them as a buffer zone between the southern kingdom and their enemies, and they just got taken away. 
but more theologically, they understood that they had been behaving in much the same way as the northern kingdom, and so most likely God's judgment was also coming towards them. They understood that they were next, either at the hand of the Assyrians or, as it would turn out, in years to come at the hand of the Babylonians. Regardless, this created for them a crisis of trust. It raises many questions in their minds as it relates to their God. Does God still love us? Can we still trust him? What about all those promises that he has made to us that are written in our scriptures? What about the covenants that he formed with our nation? We can see that we're next. We can see that bad days are ahead. Can we still trust God? And it's to this foundational question that Isaiah responds, 66 chapters, and without being overly simplistic, if we were to summarize the book of Isaiah, we would do so in two halves. The first half, 1 through 39, shows God's plan for his people. Here's what I plan to do. God gives these broad brushstrokes of redemptive history showing all the way up to the second coming of Christ what the plan is. And the message is, you can trust me in this. Here is what I'm going to do, and you can trust me. The second half of the book, 40 through 66, is God showing them how he's going to do it. Here's what I plan to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. And you can trust me in this. In that second half of the book, there is an individual who is introduced, and he is central to God's plan of the how, and that individual Isaiah refers to as the servant. As I said this morning, there are four servant songs, chapters 40, excuse me, 42, 49, 50, and 53. And we know Isaiah 53, it maybe is the most well-known chapter in the Old Testament, but the other three servant songs are just as important. Each song gives a slightly different perspective on the ministry of this servant. And Isaiah is showcasing him as the centerpiece of God's plan for his people and indeed for the nations. And he says, you can trust me in this. Now, a secondary theme in the book of Isaiah that it's important to mention would be that of wisdom. If trust is the main message from beginning to end, a secondary theme is that of God's wisdom. And that stands to reason. If God is calling his people to trust in him, he is doing it by showing them his wisdom. The problem, you might say, was not that God's people were failing to trust, but that they were trusting in the wrong thing. Often, God's people were looking at themselves. They were trusting in their own wisdom. They were going about things their own way, thinking that that was best. And so part of Isaiah's job is to rebuke them through many oracles and say, your wisdom is flawed. You need to look at God and trust in his wisdom. Or sometimes God's people were trusting in other things, not so much themselves, but other people. A common thing at that time would be for foreign nations to come to Israel, to seek to make an alliance, a bargain, an agreement. We'll protect you if, if you reciprocate in this way and God rebukes them again and says, don't trust in these foreign kings. You need to trust in me. So they were trusting in themselves or, or in other people, but they weren't trusting in the Lord. And the message of Isaiah is you need to trust God by accepting his wisdom and not the world's. 
Now, all of that is context, which is necessary for us to understand our text today. And we might ask, why, why give our attention to this text? Why give our attention and our time to such an ancient text as the book of Isaiah? And the answer is, though the issues do not present themselves in exactly the same way, the problems are still the same. The issues don't present themselves in the same way. We're not sat here this morning fearing the Assyrians or fearing the Babylonians. But the problems are still the same. Specifically, we all are prone to trust in ourselves, to trust in our own wisdom and not God's, or to trust in other things, to look elsewhere and to fail to look at the Lord, to accept him at his word, to submit our lives to his wisdom and to trust him. And so what God does is gives us these four servant songs showing us his wisdom and the trustworthiness of the servant. And Isaiah 49, the form, the structure of it, is that of a conversation. In these six verses, we have the servant speaking, and then the Lord God responds to the servant. They have a conversation, and we're witnesses to that conversation. And it actually breaks down into at least three examples of the Lord's wisdom and the servant's trustworthiness. Three times, God demonstrates his wisdom over and above ours, and in so doing, beckons us, exhorts us, commends us to put our faith in the servant. Now, I've divided the text, those three different portions where we see the Lord's wisdom, according to what I've referred to the servant's sending, the servant's silence, and finally the servant's success. So lots of S's for you this morning. Uh, the servant sending, the servant silence, and the servant success. And in each case, we see the Lord's wisdom and the servant's trustworthiness, and we're exhorted to respond. Beginning in verse 1, we read, and this is the servant speaking, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Now, I'll speak about this a little bit more as we get further into the servant song, but we can just mention it in passing right now. The servant's mission was always to go out to the nations. The servant's mission was always to go beyond the boundaries of Israel to the nations. And so it's appropriate that he begins by exhorting the coastlands, the extremities of the earth, to listen to him. And what does he say? He says, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. That's perhaps more important than you might realize. The servant is speaking about his, his earthly origins, as it were, focusing on his humanity. He says he came from his mother's womb, but he says, importantly, the Lord named my name. Now, why is that important? Because in the ancient world, to, to name someone is to exercise authority over them, to claim them as your own. Think about Adam in the garden. God said to him, you name the animals. That was God saying, Adam, you declare this kingdom to be yours. An everyday example, the parent names the child. Not somebody else, not the child himself, but the parent saying, this child belongs to me. Even when we get to the Gospels, you think of those times when Jesus interacted with a, a demon-possessed person. And we read several occasions where the demon cries out, and what is it the demon says? The demon names Christ. 
The demon says, I know who you are. You are Jesus, the son of the living God. That is the demon trying to exercise authority over Christ. And what does Jesus do? He responds by silencing them, by saying, you don't get to do that. I don't come under your authority. So in verse one of this song, when we read, the Lord named my name, that is the servant saying, I belong to him. I am his representative. And for that reason alone, you can trust me. There are foreign kings coming to God's people at this time, trying to make alliances. Those kings may have been trustworthy, but they would at least have to prove that first. The servant's able to show up and simply on the basis of the Lord's authority in his life, declare his trustworthiness. We then see how the Lord made him, fashioned him. He said, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. He made me like a polished arrow. This word picture of the servant as a weapon of war is an interesting one. It's interesting because it does not communicate, it is not intended to show us that this man would be a man of warfare. It is not communicating that he's a man of violence. We know that, at least in part, because earlier on in the first of the four servant songs, in Isaiah 42, we read familiar verses that the servant won't cry aloud in the street. He won't raise up his voice. A wounded or a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. They're familiar verses. And they tell us very clearly this servant's manner is one of meekness, of the utmost humility. So then when we get to 49 and we read that he made my mouth like a sharp sword, he fashioned me like a polished arrow, it is not to communicate that this man would be a tyrant, a man of violence, but simply to say that he would be highly effective. He would be highly effective. His ministry would be a successful one. Particularly his words, when this man speaks, his words accomplish exactly what he intends to. He will have a highly effective ministry. And what is the goal of his ministry? Verse 3, to bring glory to the Lord. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now notice there that the servant is now named. In verse 1, we're told, the Lord named me. In verse 3, the name is revealed. And you might be sat there thinking, well, I thought his name was Jesus. And you're right. But here, we're told his name is Israel. And it's very important to understand why. There is a logic that permeates through the four servant songs. Israel, the nation, were first called God's servant. In the book of Isaiah, the first to be called God's servant is Israel, the nation. They're commissioned to a task, and yet they fail. And so what God does in response is to raise up this individual Israel, who is called the servant, and he succeeds where the nation failed. And in his success, he is able to lead the nation in victory. If they would be willing to look to the individual Israel, the servant, and put their trust in him, then they would march forward in victory. That is the logic that goes through all of the servant songs. And so in 49, the name is named and we are told he is called Israel. Now at this point, 
we find no reason not to trust this man. God has emphatically declared his trustworthiness. I can put my hopes in this man. I can bring everything to his feet and say, sign me up, I'll follow this man. Except for the fact that there is a tension. There is a tension. Look again at verse two. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow, but in the quiver, he hid me. Now, I take these verses to refer to Jesus' earthly ministry, his first coming. And as you know, Jesus came and for the best part of 30 years, he had no public ministry. For around 30 years, we, we saw very little of this man. He wasn't doing anything. And then he appears around about age 30, preaching the kingdom of God, and then Three years later, he's found hanging on a cross. So you know that narrative, I trust, but just try to think about God's response here in Isaiah 49 from the perspective of one of the original readers. If you were an Israelite and you just saw your brothers being taken away at the hands of the Assyrians and you can see that you are next, it's coming your way by the Assyrians or as it would play out to be by the Babylonians, it doesn't matter, you're next. So you cry out to the Lord for help. Lord, deliver us, save us, do something. And the Lord responds and says, I'm going to send a man. And he's going to be meek and humble. He'll be highly effective, but he'll be hidden. You won't see him. As an Israelite, you might say, God, sorry, you didn't hear me right. The Assyrians, they just took our neighbors away and what we need you to do right now is to crush them, that army. Deliver us or, or raise us up into an almighty force so the Assyrians would never even think of coming our way again and God says, I heard you. And my response is, I'm gonna send a man humble and meek and you won't see him. Can you see how the Israelite is now having to decide whether he's going to trust in the Lord or not? The Israelite is now having to decide whether he will put his wisdom to one side and submit to God's wisdom. And in many senses, it's exactly the same for us today. The problems present themselves different, differently, but the issues are exactly the same. The crisis of, of health comes. The crisis of finances come. The crisis of relationships come. We all bring burdens here this morning. In a room this size with this many people, there are dozens upon dozens of issues that are represented. You know the pinch points in your life. You know what it is that you are bringing to the table this morning. And maybe you've shared it with others and maybe you haven't and it's just something that you alone are bearing. And you cry out to God, God, help me in this. You know the struggles that I have, help me. God says, I sent my son, humble and meek, effective but hidden. And that's my response to your suffering. And we might say, why, why doesn't God answer our prayers? In exactly the way that we would want, at exactly the time that we would want. 
I believe that he's sovereign. I believe that he hears me. He hears me crying out for relief. Why is he not answering my prayers in exactly the way that I want, at exactly the time that I want? And the answer is because if he did, then you would never learn to trust him. If God answered your prayers according to your wisdom, you would never learn to trust him. You would learn how to make use of him like he were a vending machine. When I feel the pain of life in a broken world, I bring my prayers to God. I put the prayers into the machine. The answer comes out exactly the way that I would want it, and then I get back to my thing. You would never learn how to trust the Lord. And what God wants is your trust. And you get to learn to trust the Lord by submitting to his wisdom and not your own. Now, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to cry out to the Lord for relief. I cry out to the Lord most days that he would give relief in this situation over here, that he would alleviate this individual's burden, that he would ease the suffering of this person over here. But more important than God answering your prayers in exactly the way that you would want at the time you would want is that you would say, God, I trust you. You cry out for relief. You say, I, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand in your wisdom, in your sovereignty, why you've ordained this trial right now for me. I cry out to you that you would give me relief, but I trust you. I submit myself to your wisdom, and I trust you. Now, that's the wisdom of God and the trustworthiness of the servant displayed in the sending of this individual. He goes on now to talk about what I've called the silence of the individual. Verse 4, the servant says, But I have said, I labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and my vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. The servant is offering an objection. Now, there's a few things to note whenever you read the servant songs. The first is that all four of the servant songs are written very much from the perspective of Christ's humanity. So we know when we come to the Gospels and then in turn the epistles, we know that Jesus was fully man and fully God. But when Isaiah writes the four servant songs, he places his emphasis on Jesus' humanity. He's not trying to develop a fully robust theology of Christ's person. He simply places the accent on Christ's humanity. So there are certain things we read in the servant songs that might seem strange to us in light of the fact that we know Jesus was fully God, but that's okay. Isaiah is just highlighting that he was a, a man. The second thing to note is that in this verse, there is not necessarily any sense of the servant growing discouraged or despondent or frustrated. I think we tend to read that into the verse, but actually the servant is merely stating objective fact. Again, referring to Jesus' earthly ministry, his first coming, the servant says, look around me. There is no evident fruit from my ministry. I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength and there's nothing to show for it. 
This is just an honest assessment of how things went when Jesus came. But notice how he then responds. Very much like the psalmist in the Psalms of Lament. You know the Psalms of Lament where the psalmist looks around him and says, I I can't understand what's going on. This doesn't tally with my plan. This doesn't play out the way that I thought it would. And then there's that point in the psalm always when the psalmist says, but I choose to trust in the Lord. And the servant's doing the same thing here. He says, I've labored in vain. I don't see the fruit from my ministry, yet I believe that my right is with the Lord. That word right is translated elsewhere in the book of Isaiah as simply justice. I know that my justice, my vindication is with the Lord. My recompense, that is my reward is with him. And so you see what the servant is doing is projecting forward. He says, right now, there is no evident fruit from my ministry. There was not a revival when Jesus came. Certainly, the crowds followed him, but John's gospel tells us for all the wrong reasons. And then his life ended with him hanging on a cross. And yet Jesus says, projecting forward, I understand the end from the beginning. I understand that ultimately, I will be vindicated. There will be a reward. And I think we adhere to this logic. I think we are well-tuned to this logic as it relates to Jesus' life. So when you read the gospel narrative, it's very early on in the gospels when there is a hint of suffering on the way. Very early on in the gospels, we read verses to the effect of the Pharisees sought to kill him. And my guess is when you read those verses, you don't start to panic. You don't say, I can't read on because things aren't playing out the way I would want them to. When you keep reading and you see that Jesus is continuously rejected, he's preaching the best news ever. (laughs) I come with a message of salvation, of solving your greatest issue. I come declaring the way in which you would be made right with a holy God, and yet he is rejected. When you see that testimony of rejection, I don't imagine that you're breaking into a sweat not knowing what to do with it. When you see towards the end of the gospel Jesus being handed over, tried like a criminal and sentenced to death, I don't imagine that you close your Bible and say, I can't keep walking with this man. That's not what you do. We're well attuned to this logic as it relates to Jesus' life. The problem is we're not well attuned to it as it relates to our own lives. You see, the servant here is functioning very much as an example. You remember I spoke about the logic of the servant's songs. Is that where he is labeled as Israel in order to lead the nation of Israel? It is the same for us today. The second you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are declaring, I am anchored to him now. My life is his. Christ is mine and I am his and my life is defined by the Lord Jesus. That is what it means to be a Christian. And the second you do that, you have to understand that your life will now follow the same trajectory as Christ's. Now that is not to say that you will end up hanging on a cross, but broadly it is certainly to say that God calls you to carry your cross and he promises you a crown. You cannot switch the order. 
It must always, always, always be the cross before the crown. Too often, Christians declare their allegiance to Christ. They put their faith in him. They gladly receive the blessing of sins forgiven. But they look for the crown, failing to understand that that is not the logic of the Christian life. God has called you to a ministry wherein there are no promises of abundant fruit, of earthly success, but he intends for you to look forward, to know the end from the beginning and to say, but my right is with God. Ultimately, because of Christ, I know I will be vindicated and I know there will be a reward. As Jim said earlier, I have the privilege of teaching at the Master's Seminary and it's interesting to see those guys go through the school and to graduate. And as they graduate, I would say there are high hopes, but often misplaced expectations. Often guys are excited to get out into the ministry and, and they share their, their dreams and their desires with me. And it's often of, of immediate reward, of abundant fruit. I mean, who doesn't want that kind of ministry? And in the Lord's providence, I'm able to cross paths with many of them again a few years down the road. And so I talk to them and, and, and ask for the backstory. Fill me in. How are things? And most often, the graduates are very grateful. They're full of joy. They're perhaps more mature in their thinking. The consistent message is always things didn't play out the way I thought they would. I never thought this would be what happened. Because that's God's wisdom and not yours. And it's the same for you today. You can testify right now that your life is not playing out the way you thought it would. And it doesn't mean that you, you throw it all in and say, I'm done with this. It means you submit to God's wisdom and not yours and you say, yes. And I know that ultimately my right is with God. That ultimately... My recompense is with him. Now, if I can just tease out one more line of application, think about that logic as you come to church. If God has saved you, then he's called you to be part of a local body. He has called you to be a faithful minister of the gospel. In one form or another, he has equipped you, he has gifted you to serve the body with no promise of immediate success or abundant success. He's called you merely to be faithful, to keep doing the same thing day after day after day, regardless of how it plays out. And the only way in which you might endure through such a ministry is to say, I know my right is with God and my recompense is with him. Notice when you submit to this logic, the incredible blessing that flows. If we can get ahead of ourselves just a little bit, drop down to verse 5. The servant introduces the Lord. And now the Lord says, this is the servant introducing the Lord. And notice, in this lengthy introduction, the servant says, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Now, again, the servant's songs place an emphasis on his humanity. I don't think this is the servant speaking with a special prerogative as one who came fully God. I think he's speaking in the fullness of his humanity. 
and he is speaking immediately after verse 4. In verse 4, the servant demonstrates his trust in God. In verse 4, the servant says, things didn't go the way they thought they would. And yet my right is with God. There's my trust in him. And immediately after, the servant in his humanity is able to say, I am honored in the Lord's eyes. And my God has become my strength. The point is this. Insomuch as you are able to submit to this wisdom and live out your life trusting in the Lord regardless of the way things pan out, the Lord says two things about you. Number one, he looks at you and says, you are honored in my eyes. And number two, and I have become your strength. When you place your trust in the Lord, know this, that God says, you are honored in my eyes and I will be your strength. Well, the servant song concludes by focusing on his success. The servant's success, and again, the servant introduces the Lord. He says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel may be gathered to him. All the servant has done there is rehearsed the theology that has been given to us in the first few verses. He's reviewing that same theology, and then he says, God, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant. There is a subtle note of irony there. The original language, the word for glory, means heavy, weighty. And God says, it's not glorious enough, it's too light. It's not glorious enough that my servant should redeem Israel. Rather, I will make you as a light for the nations. And my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And again, think about this from the perspective of one of the original Israelite readers. Now they're really being asked to trust in the Lord. Because, as you know, as you read through the Bible, one of the issues that had crept into the thinking of God's people, Israel, was that they had become hard-hearted towards the notion of God's grace going beyond their people. Think about the prophet Jonah. Think about the book of Acts. Time and time again, the issue is that the Jewish people were jealous, wrongly jealous, for God's grace. They did not want the Gentile to have any experience of this God. So from the perspective of the original Israelite receiving this text, yet again they're being asked to trust in the Lord's wisdom and not their own. Now for us, it comes to us in a very different way. I trust that as we read verse 6 in particular, you sit there praising the Lord. The very reason you are here this morning in Christ is because God's plan was to take his salvation to the ends of the earth. If it had not been so, you would not know the glory of sins forgiven. But we sit here a privileged people. When Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1, his parting words to the apostles are, your mission is to take this gospel to the end of the earth. And the book of Acts shows us that progression. And I'll often say to folks, anywhere you are in the book of Acts, you can hit pause and praise the Lord for this mission because that's the reason you're a Christian today. And so we look at verse 6 and we say, praise the Lord. I do not struggle to trust in this. 
But maybe you do. Maybe you do. And what I mean by that is that as we read verse 6 and we see the glory of God's plan going to the nations, we have to understand that at the same time it comes with great responsibility. To be the beneficiary of this plan comes with great responsibility. Now we can see that most clearly actually by turning to the book of Acts. So turn with me all the way to the New Testament and I want you to look specifically at Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we read of Paul and Barnabas. And they make a speech. And in their speech, in verse 47 of Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas say, The Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They're quoting from our text this morning, Isaiah 49. Now let's try and figure out why they're doing that. First of all, notice this is Paul and Barnabas. Paul's an apostle, Barnabas is not. That's really important because there's a danger we would look at this text and say, well, Paul was doing the apostolic thing. This doesn't have implications for my life, but we can't get away with that. Paul and Barnabas said this, Barnabas was not an apostle. This is not an apostle thing, this is a Christian thing. Okay, so now what are they saying? Notice how they said, the Lord has commanded us. And then they quote the servant song. And we might say, well, well, hang on, the Lord didn't command you, he commanded the servant. Well, they're not being disingenuous, they simply understand the theological trajectory of the servant. They understand that the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, is no longer with us bodily, and yet there is still work to be done. They understand that their role as Christians is to pick up the baton and to run, to keep running as hard and as fast as they can. And in the book of Acts, for these men, that looks like going out physically to new places, to plant churches and to spread the gospel. But I might say more broadly, within the context of the theology of the book of Acts, we are all of us called to show up and to play our part. These men were just showing us what it means to be good churchmen. They get it. They're in. Or you might put it like this. By quoting Isaiah 49, they are showing their trust in the Lord. They're saying, I choose to set my wisdom to one side, to submit my life to God's wisdom, and to trust in his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever that means. And for Paul, it meant some really unpleasant things. And so the imperative that comes to you and I this morning time and time again is to submit to the Lord's wisdom and to trust in his servant. And practically, the way in which that is played out, the way in which you show your trust, the way in which you put your trust in the Lord on display to a watching world, very, very simply, is to show up and to play your part. To strive to be the best church member you can be to be faithful in the way that the Lord has gifted you to contribute to the body, knowing that that is the Lord's chosen instrument by which this mission will continue to the ends of the earth. And as you do so, you can know and be assured that the Lord is pleased with your efforts. He is declaring to the heavenly host, this one is honored in my sight. I have become his strength. And we keep trusting in him. 
until our faith becomes sight and the Lord Jesus returns. Pray with me now to close. Our Father, we give you thanks this morning for your gracious provision of the servant, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin, but that you came to the rescue and sent him to live a perfect life, to die a criminal's death on the cross, and so as to make a payment for our sin. And we see in him your wisdom. Jesus' life was an example of your wisdom on display to a watching world. We would never have written that script. That would never have been the way in which we had orchestrated our salvation. But you know best. And we trust you. Father, having put our faith in Christ, we understand that he is our example. We are to follow after him. We are to be like him. And so we do pray this morning especially that you would help us day by day to put our trust in Christ, knowing that your plan for our lives is the very best and that you desire our trust. Lord, I pray especially that you would help us to be faithful stewards of the gifts that you've given us to serve the local church. There is perhaps nothing more glorious in this earthly life than to be part of the local church, seeing your work in it and through it to the nations. Help us to trust you in this respect, to be found faithful, knowing that you delight in that, that you become our strength when we're willing to trust you. And may we do it all to the praise of your glory until Jesus returns. We ask all this in his name. Amen.